I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Since 2019, I've preached five sermons from 1 Timothy. It's a great book that instructs Timothy in how to order and direct the church community. One of the key verses is found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes to his protege, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church doesn't belong to itself. The members of the church do not own the church. The church is God's household. Therefore, God is the one who gets to arrange and order things in his household. He's the one who gets to tell us what to do and what not to do. And God does this arranging and ordering and regulating through his words such as those that he inspired the Apostle Paul to write, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so our job as a church family is to pay attention to God's written word and conduct ourselves in accordance with it. And God appointed leaders like Paul and Timothy and the overseers and elders have a special responsibility to see to it that the church is doing things God's way. In today's passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, we have a blueprint for pastoral ministry. And every Christian should care deeply about this blueprint for pastoral ministry. And here's two reasons why. First, as a member of God's household, you should care about the the health and proper functioning of the household. Unfaithful pastors will undoubtedly produce unfaithful and unhealthy congregations. And your, your eyes should be open wide, illuminated by scripture as to the difference between faithful and unfaithful, healthy and unhealthy. Pastors don't have a free hand. They must do things by the book. And so it's imperative that you yourself know what's in the book. And then you can earnestly support faithful men who will actually and competently do those things that God has instructed pastors and elders to do. And you can remove pastors and elders who have proven unfaithful or incompetent in those things. And in all this, your standard for assessing faithfulness must be the Holy Scriptures. The second second reason you should care about God's blueprint for pastoral ministry is because your growth as a Christian and your perseverance in remaining faithful to the Lord until the end of your life is tied closely, not exclusively, but closely to the faithfulness of your pastors. Now, that may sound like an audacious claim, but it's 
solidly biblical, and you'll actually see it at the end of the passage that we're going to study this morning. Although there are Christians out there who, by God's grace, grow in the Lord and remain faithful in spite of having unfaithful and incompetent pastors, nevertheless, the biblical ideal is that Christians grow in the Lord and remain faithful to the Lord in part through the faithful ministry of good pastors. So let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. Holy Scripture says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of, deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would shine the light of your word upon our hearts so that we would be instructed and challenged and transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wants Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Every Christian, of course, must strive to be a good and faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the context of 1 Timothy, Paul is speaking to Timothy specifically in regard to his leadership role. Paul brought Timothy onto his team near the beginning of his second missionary journey as it is recounted at the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Timothy had already shown himself to be a faithful disciple and then Paul uh, brought Timothy onto his team, and with, with respect to Timothy's development in ministry, Timothy lived and served as an apprentice of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Timothy was very dear to Paul in 1 Timothy 1-2. Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. And in 2 Timothy 1-2, Paul calls Timothy, my beloved child. Timothy had on-the-job ministerial training and this training was not formal and detached, but warm and familial, like a father 
discipling and teaching his son. And as Timothy matured, he was entrusted with significant leadership responsibilities. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the beginning of our letter, we learn that Paul had given a special assignment to Timothy, namely in chapter 1 verse 3, to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. As the apostles' hand-picked representative, Timothy had a responsibility to oversee the church in Ephesus Ephesus and to help it grow along biblical lines and to protect it from false teaching and false teachers. So when Paul sets forth his holy ambition that Timothy be a good servant of Christ Jesus, he is talking to Timothy in his official capacity as a recognized leader of the church. The terminology to describe Timothy is not crucial. One could think of Timothy as an apostle's representative or as a missionary, or as a church planter, or as a pastor, or as a minister of the gospel, or simply as a church leader. The terminology isn't, cru- isn't, isn't critical, but, but Timothy's function is very important. Timothy had a sacred responsibility to feed and lead the flock as a pastor-shepherd cares for the flock. All pastors and elders shared this same basic responsibility and all overseers and shepherds must seek to conform themselves to Paul's instruction to Timothy in this passage. This passage teaches us that there are at least four things that faithful pastors must do and we're just going to walk through them in the order that they first appear in the text. First, a faithful pastor must labor diligently to teach God's word. This appears right off the bat in verse 6, where it says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. What are these things that Timothy is supposed to put before the brothers? Well, it obviously includes the things that Paul just impressed upon Timothy at the beginning of chapter verses 1 through 5, namely that God's people ought to humbly receive all of God's good gifts and not reject them. But these things would also include the instruction about prayer and the instruction about men and women in chapter 2 and the instruction about elders and deacons in chapter 3 and then at the end of chapter 3 the instruction about the church its nature and purpose and its core doctrinal confession put these things before the brothers and then after Paul gives additional instruction in chapter 4 verses 7 through 10 what does he say command and teach these things and then after giving additional instruction in chapter 5 verse 1 through chapter 6 verse 2 What does Paul say in chapter 6, verse 2? Teach and urge these things. So when you put it all together, these things in verse 6 refer by extension to the entire scope of sound doctrine, which Paul refers to later in verse 6 when he says, the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Timothy is to be 
trained in these words, the reliable words that rightly articulate the Christian belief system, the trustworthy words that accurately describe the good doctrine, the good and faithful teaching of our Lord, as well as the good and faithful teaching of our Lord's authorized representatives, the apostles. Christianity, of course, is more than a belief system. It's more than a doctrinal system, but it's not less. It's not less than that. Growing out of his own immersion into and training in these faithful, life-giving words of God, Timothy is to put these words before the congregation, to instruct and command, to explain and exhort, to proclaim and press home to the hearts and minds of his hearers. Be suspicious of any preacher who seems to minimize his engagement with the text as if that's the necessary but less interesting part of the message, and at the same time seems to relish the illustrations and the stories and the cultural references as if that's the really good part of the message. With that kind of a preacher, congregants are getting a bad deal. Because God's people need to interact mainly with God's words, not with the preacher's experience. Disciples need to engage primarily with sound doctrine, not with sound bites from popular culture. The preacher's job is to point his hearers to the words of the Lord because these words and only these words are more valuable than an abundance of silver and gold. As we see in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Read Scripture. Apply Scripture. Explain Scripture. These are God-breathed words. The preacher must be determined not to add to these words, not to subtract from these words, not to obscure these words, not to give the impression that any other words are of equal or greater value. Not to use God's words as mere background for the interesting picture the preacher wants to paint. Not to use the scriptures as a springboard for the preacher's message. God's words are not a jumping off point. God's words are to be the deliber deliberate focus and cherished substance of the minister's message. Further, Paul impresses upon Timothy that he must be absolutely resolved to avoid rabbit trails. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, verse 7. Paul gives a variation of the same warning in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 to 5, 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 to 17, and Titus 3, 9. The fact that this instruction is repeated over and over suggests that a preacher might be tempted to get so imbalanced that he ends up talking far too little about the important stuff and far too much about the trivial stuff. There are people out there who have this bent to look away from the serious, substantive teaching that is jumping right off the pages of the text and to shift their gaze to something secondary or speculative or debatable or controversial. They're addicted to what is less important. 
And I tell you, avoid preachers who frequent the rabbit trails. Second, a faithful pastor must train himself for godliness, verses 7 to 10. He must exert effort and discipline in order to know God and walk with God and live a godly life. Godliness is eminently practical. It refers to devoting one's life to God, pursuing a God-centered way of life, living in a manner that is pleasing in God's sight. The minister must rely on God as his strength, fix his eyes on God as his goal, and keep his every step in step with the Holy Spirit. The faithful pastor must, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, there is a close connection between studying God's word and pursuing godliness. For it is God's word that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy Timothy 3.16. God's word produces godliness in God's people. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. God's word is meant to be kept, to be lived. In Titus chapter 1, Paul says that the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then as you read through chapter 2, what are the practical things that Titus is to teach? Sober-mindedness, self-control, love, submission, good works. As Jesus taught us, the intent of the law and the prophets, and therefore really the intent of the entire scriptures is to facilitate your walk with God, that you would love him with your whole being, and to facilitate your relationship to others, that you would love them with the same determination by which you take care of yourself. A pastor is handicapped, severely handicapped, if he proclaims sound doctrine for your growth in godliness, while he refuses himself to let that sound doctrine transform his own life. Timothy, Ben, Ben's an elder. Jeremy, where's Jeremy? Going to Bible school. Tom, Tom's an elder. Brian, train yourself for godliness. The same words that are to be the substance of Timothy's teaching ministry are also to strengthen Timothy on the path of obedience. For the faithful pastor, the careful study of God's word must never become a theoretical matter. Do Christians care about the life of the mind? Absolutely yes. Sound doctrine is essential. The ministry of faithful pastors is unapologetically doctrinal. Theological, expositional, logical, thoughtful, yes. But the ministry of faithful pastors can never be merely intellectual or merely doctrinal because God's purpose for giving us his words is so that we would be transformed by those words and empowered to live a fruitful life. And the pastor himself is not an exception to this rule. 
the faithful pastor's engagement with God's words must not be for the sole purpose of getting a message out of it. First and foremost, the faithful pastor's engagement with God's words must be so that he himself is transformed in his own walk with God. Now in verse 8, still dealing with the same theme here, Paul contrasts spiritual training and physical training. Bodily training is of some value, Paul says. You are a physical being, and it is to your advantage that you have sufficient energy and strength and stamina at the physical level in order to carry out your everyday responsibilities. Without going off the deep end into the idolatry of obsession with physical health and fitness and nutrition, you really would do well to take care of yourself. It has some value. But even so, while bodily training is of some value, training for godliness is of far greater consequence because godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Consider this. There is no situation in this present life in which godliness is not valuable. Not a single one. Godliness is valuable in any and every situation in this present life. If you find yourself in an argument with your spouse, it's small comfort to say, well, at least I'm having this argument as a physically fit person. <laughs> Good for you. Are you spiritually fit? to work through marital conflict in a way that serves your spouse and brings your marriage to a better place. You see? In your day-to-day -day challenges, relationship challenges, work challenges, financial challenges, ministry challenges, if your preparation for these challenges is limited to the fact that you had a morning workout and had a good breakfast, you're in big trouble. But if you're learning to walk with God and trust his promises and be patient with other people and display the fruit of the Spirit at all times, then you will meet difficulties and opportunities in a constructive way. Godliness holds promise for the present life because it enables you to do life God's way, to serve others in a way that honors God. And godliness generates an abundance of fruit in everyday life. Further, godliness also holds promise for the life to come in that it prepares you and ripens you for eternity. Physically healthy and physically unhealthy people have this in common. They're all going to die. But spiritually healthy and spiritually unhealthy people are worlds apart. People who truly know the Lord will demonstrate it through their practical growth and godliness, and such people are destined for everlasting glory. But people who do not know the Lord, even though they claim otherwise, will demonstrate their lostness in ungodliness, and such people are destined for everlasting fire. The grace of salvation that is given through the atoning death and triumphant resurrection of our Lord, that 
gracious salvation leads to practical godliness and practical godliness leads to everlasting glory. But the rejection of grace leads to continued ungodliness which leads to final condemnation. In verse 9, Paul says that the saying, the saying that godliness is of value in every way, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Don't pay lip service to godliness. Well, of course I know that godliness is important. Really? Don't pay lip service to godliness, but then put all of your practical focus on bodily training and financial planning and material success. Instead, take the priority of godliness with utmost seriousness and internalize it and live accordingly. For to this end, the end or goal being the life to come and godliness the pathway to it, to this end we toil and strive, Paul says. Why? Because Paul believes God's promise concerning the future life to come. And so it makes sense that Paul uses the word hope in verse 10 because in the New Testament, hope consistently refers to the confident expectation that we have concerning the future. And the reason we have that confident expectation is because God has made a promise to us and we believe him. So to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God and we trust him. And he is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe, verse, verse 10. Not all people are saved, but there is only one savior for all people. Those who trust in the living God come to know him as savior in an encourage, encouraging and transformative way. Those who refuse to believe will learn to their dismay that the Savior is also judge, and he shall condemn them for their unbelieving and unrepentant hearts. As for Paul, he toils and strives in view of that glorious future day when he and his fellow believers will stand complete in the presence of Christ. And Paul toils for his own benefit and for the benefit of his hearers. Regarding his own personal discipline, Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. But Paul is not toiling and pressing on only for himself, but also for all of his fellow believers. As he says in Colossians 1.28, Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Faithful pastors must labor with the end in clear view. Third, a faithful pastor must set an example for his fellow believers. As Paul writes, starting in the middle of verse 12, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This third duty to set an example forges a crucial link with the first two duties that we've already pondered. These three things belong closely together. Think about it. 
Timothy is supposed to teach God's word so that God's people grow in godliness. That's the first duty. And the second duty is that Timothy is to make sure that on the basis of that same word, he is training himself for godliness. That's the second duty. What the third duty brings into view and connects it all is that Timothy's pursuit of and growth in godliness must be observable and visible to the congregation. If a pastor is preaching God's word to the congregation so that it grows in holiness, which is what he's supposed to be doing, the congregation should not be left wondering whether or not the one who is preaching is himself growing in godliness. That's not a good situation. In the Christian church, it is totally unacceptable to have teachers who are not practitioners. When Jesus pronounced judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he said this about them. For they preach, but do not practice, Matthew 23, 3. And that is a damning assessment. The pastors and elders of a church must preach and practice, and their practice must be visible to the congregation. Now at this point, I want to return to something that I implied earlier. Earlier I said that a faithful pastor is called to preach God's word, not his own experiences. And that's exactly right. I meant what I said. But when I say that, I do not mean that a pastor's experience is irrelevant to the congregation. Far from it. As a matter of fact, the pastor's experience and growth and manner of life and way of relating to people is of great relevance to the congregation. But how do Christians get acquainted with their pastor's manner of life? Generally speaking, not by hearing the pastor talk about himself. Instead, Christians get acquainted with the character and example of their leaders by spending time with them and seeing them act and interact and react in a wide variety of settings and circumstances. And while Christians should take steps to be around their leaders, the pastor himself bears primary responsibility to make sure that he is living among the people that he is serving. This is one reason, by the way, why it is so important why those charged with pastoral oversight practice Hospitality, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. How are Christians supposed to observe and learn from the example of their leaders if their leaders don't open up their lives, their hearts, their homes? When Paul gave his farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul preached the gospel, but he lived among the people and his life was on display. Paul's character and manner of life corresponded to the message that he proclaimed. Timothy, 
and every other pastoral leader must follow in Paul's footsteps by letting their lives function as a practical example to God's people. Set an example in speech. What does a pastor talk about and how does he talk about it? Set an example in conduct. What does a pastor do? Does he exhibit moral and ethical integrity? Set an example in love. Does a pastor demonstrate genuine care for other people? Set an example in faith. Does a pastor demonstrate confidence in God amid difficulties and trials? Set an example in purity. Does does a pastor demonstrate single-minded devotion to Christ? A pastor may spin smooth words from the pulpit on Sunday morning, but if his speech is rude and crude, if his conduct is self-absorbed and self-protecting, if he seems more interested in using people than serving people, if he's prone to crippling anxiety the same way that pagans are, and if you get the sense that he's not dealing straight or is often blinded by his own ambition or greed or lust, then he is doing you a profound disservice and you should fire him. I don't mean to say, by the way, I don't mean to say that a pastor must be perfect, for in that case there would be no pastors. But a pastor must exhibit transparent godliness, and you ought to see that he is making progress, as indicated in verse 15. One other thing about verse 12, by the way, because I haven't addressed it yet, Paul says at the beginning of verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Although Timothy is a grown man, perhaps in his early to mid-30s, it is possible that some older Christians in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s might be less than enthusiastic about learning from and submitting to a pastor who is 15 or 25 or 35 years younger than they are. Timothy must be undeterred. He must command and teach sound doctrine to the whole congregation, which includes Christians who far outrank him in terms of age and life experience. So be it. He must not allow others to despise him. Now, in a really bad situation, the pastor might have to sit down and have a frank conversation with one of his detractors. But in general, the whole verse, verse 12, gives Timothy a most blessed tactic for winning the respect of older people. Set an example. Most pastors in most congregations, most of the time, will most effectively silence their critics by living a faithful life, by pursuing practical godliness, by making progress, by setting an example without fanfare or publicity stunts, and by pressing on week after week, month after month, year after year, and then someone might say, I'm not inclined to like that man, says the congregant. And it would be far easier for me to learn from someone 20 years his senior. But I can't deny the fact that he walks the walk, and I have learned to respect him. That is a good testimony. These these first three duties to teach the congregation, train himself for godliness, and set an example for the congregation effectively capture what pastoral ministry is all about. When we come to verses 14 to 16, 
we really don't find any new instruction, but instead Paul is reaching a crescendo and urging Timothy to be totally devoted to the things that Paul has just been talking to him about. If we want to summarize verses 14 to 16 as a separate duty, it is simply this. Give it your all. Give your all to the first three duties. In verse 14, Paul says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In this context, the gift you have probably refers to Timothy's commission into gospel ministry. When Timothy was commissioned into ministry, which was done as other men recognized God's call upon Timothy's life, and they separated him under that ministry through the laying on of hands, when that was happening, God was graciously giving to Timothy a sphere of responsibility in the overall administration of God's kingdom. And Timothy was not to think lightly about this high calling, but was instead to be a faithful steward of the responsibilities entrusted to him. And the opposite of neglect is practice and immerse. Go to the next verse, verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice the ministry entrusted to you. Declare the word. Discipline your life. Set an example. And even so, beneath the practice of doing is a life of being. For the instruction, immerse yourself in them, literally means be in them. Think about that. A faithful pastor must be in, live in, dwell in in, swim in the things of God, the words of God, the promises of God, period. A faithful pastor must resolve to live a God-saturated, gospel-saturated, scripture-saturated life. Life is short. Eternity is long. People are precious. There isn't time to fool around with unhelpful things. Plant yourself in the things of God and let that dictate everything you do, everything you say, everything you are. A pastor must pursue this with the understanding that his own progress will be a visible encouragement to those he is teaching. Practice and immerse yourself in these things, end of verse 15, so that all may see your progress. Finally, coming to verse 16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Here it is again. The, the minister's two main concerns. First, a pastor must closely watch himself, his own character and example, and to make sure that his manner of life conforms to what Scripture teaches about godliness. And second, a pastor must closely watch his teaching, making sure that he faithfully teaches what Scripture says. The faithful pastor must practice and immerse and keep a close watch, not once in a while, but always. Not in short bursts, but over the long haul. As it says in the middle of verse 16, persist in this. And why? We're almost done. L listen to this. A pastor must do this because the stakes are high. 
Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. When Paul tells Timothy that he will save both himself and his hearers through the means of faithful pastoral ministry, he, he means just what he says, but we can't rightly understand what Paul is saying unless we understand, as I often have talked about, how salvation has both a past and future dimension. Timothy and the brothers, verse 6, and the believers, verse 12, they were already saved in the past sense. They were regenerated, justified, forgiven, adopted into God's forever family, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those are things that cannot be added to or undone. But that's, that's past. Salvation also has a future dimension when believers will be resurrected and glorified and will see Jesus in resplendent majesty and reign with him forever. That's salvation future. And as I have said many times and will continue to say many times from this pulpit, the pursuit of godliness is the God-appointed pathway between past salvation and future salvation. True believers who've been truly saved will confirm and demonstrate that they have been saved by growing in practical godliness. And at the same time, growth in practical godliness prepares for and anticipates and ripens you for the glory to come. And so God's design for faithful pastoral ministry is that it help you walk the God-appointed pathway from the moment of conversion in the past to the moment of glorification in the future. And of course, the faithful pastor must walk the same God-appointed pathway. If by God's grace we hang in there together and walk the pilgrim pathway together and grow in Christian maturity together and thereby prove to be true Christians, the most profoundly wonderful thing that we get out of all that is that one day we will be glorified together in the presence of the Lord. For by so doing, by so teaching and living as a faithful pastor, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And on that day when we are standing before the Lord Jesus, we will not wish that our pastors had spent more time talking about themselves or about silly myths or about physical fitness. But we will be thankful for pastors who had a laser-like focus on the Word of God and on Jesus whom we encounter in Scripture and on the godliness that flows from sound doctrine and on the glory that the teaching was preparing us for all along. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do this, grow this, sustain this, strengthen this at South Paris Baptist Church, that together we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and demonstrate a clear witness to our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.